When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Hello, everybody. I am Lucia Matuonto, and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books, and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin! Welcome back to another episode of the RV. We are headed to Wisconsin to speak to James Bastian. James is the author of the book Wisconsin Logging Camp 1921, which was published in 2015. The sequel, entitled Willa's Pursuit, is coming out September 2022. So, James, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And James, it is my first time in Wisconsin. I, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. And what is your favorite thing about Wisconsin? The North Woods of Wisconsin. There are Minnesota's called the state with 10,000 lakes, but Wisconsin actually has 11,000 lakes dotting the northern part of the state of Wisconsin. And the, it is loosely populated, lightly populated, and there are streams and a lot of uh, small lakes, and it's very scenic, very wooded. So it's, it's a gorgeous part of the country if you like to get away, and I do. It sounds great, so I'm going to add it to my bucket list. Okay. So, James, you started the writing after a 30-year business career. What made you start writing? I'm a former high school teacher, and I taught history and psychology. Those are what my undergraduate degrees are in. So that's where my interest lies. And despite then converting to capitalism, getting an MBA, and having a long business career, I still did my reading and research and my interests stayed in history and psychology whenever I had spare time. I came across an article from an old newspaper in Wisconsin, which related a story about three loggers finding a petrified body inside a tree that they cut down while they were logging. I was fascinated. Who was this person? Where were they from? How did they get in the tree? Who found them? What there were just a litany of questions that I think anyone would ask. And so I began looking, researching to find all the answer to those questions. Who was this person and whatnot? Regrettably, with the advent of the internet, I found that this story was a hoax, that the newspaper editor needed a two-inch column to fill the front page of his paper, so he made this story up. So here I was with all of this research data that I had, and much of it was very interesting, and I thought, rather than just throw it away, I'll write a historical account 
of a chickadee. And a chickadee was the name of a position in a logging camp that very often young boys would have. So you have a young boy working in a rough and tumble logging camp in 1920 in Wisconsin. I thought, I'm going to find a veteran of that experience and write a book about it. Unfortunately, um, the, there was a lot of information, but it was they were snippets of experiences and episodes. And it wasn't a cohesive story, a historical story. I couldn't find one person with enough, enough breadth and depth of their story to write a whole history. So rather than just throw away what I had, I connected the dots with fiction. So the book, Wisconsin Logging Camp 1921, is 95% history, but to make it a cohesive story, I added some fiction. Instead of seven or eight immigrant families, there are two. Instead of three or four different boys working in a logging camp, there's just one in the story. But it's the aggregation of those experiences. So that's what led to the writing of the book. When I retired, I had a wealth of time. <laughs> I was able to bring all of that together, and hence, we have an avocation. So that's almost non-fiction. Interesting. And you mentioned you are a slow reader, which I know a lot of people can relate to. How long does it take you to write your books? I'm saying that because I know few people who can write 300-page novel in three to four days, but a quality work takes time. Well, uh, I have a sample size of three. So recognizing that it's a small sample size, also recognizing that the first one took 25 years from when I started researching to what I finished, it's kind of a hard question to answer. I didn't get down to business until just a few years ago, but it was the accumulation of all of that information and invested time that led to the writing of the book. But I would say if from having the data that I'm going to write about and writing the book, about six months. Wow, that's, that's not a lot because you do a lot of research. I do, but I do research for fun. And a lot of the research doesn't end up in a book. It just leads to other things. And from that, I will sort out the most interesting to me. And frankly, the criteria for me is, I'm sure the same as it is for most, certainly historical fiction writers, but I think most people that are reading history and looking, uh, uh, researching their interest, it's ordinary people doing the extraordinary or experiencing something extraordinary. And so those are the kind of episodes, experiences that I'll see when I'm researching that jump out at me. And those are the ones I'll hold on to. And those are the ones I include in the books. And James, your first book, as you were telling us before, is called Wisconsin Logging Camp 1921. Can you tell us quickly what it's about? The book follows two immigrant families, one from Germany and one from Poland, shortly after World War I. And I chose 1920, approximately, as the timeline, because that was one of the most transformational decades of the 20th century. You have World War I, women's suffrage, 
prohibition, the Spanish flu, the Russian revolution. You have the largest human immigration in history occurring. And so many, including my family, but so many families had their ancestors come to the United States from Europe and Eastern Europe during that time frame. And with the interest in genealogy and ancestry, there's a lot of information that's been digitalized and you can find it online, but it's largely who, where, and when. That's what you find out. But the most intriguing questions to me are why, how, and all the what's. What did they experience when they left? What were their experiences along the way? And that's where history and research can help. So these two immigrant families are sort of the immigrant everyman from those locations. Um, again, each of those families is sort of the aggregate of two or three other families' experiences. And what I did to include those experiences were just give them brothers. So each brother has a slightly different experience, which is reminiscent or reflective of a different family. But the Polish families experienced largely the same kind of events and the same challenges. The German families, similar, but different, the different circumstances. And so the book follows these two families and they come together, both literally and figuratively, in Northern Wisconsin at a logging camp in 1921. Uh, and that's the story. And James, what inspired you to write this story set during this time? It's because it was a very important uh, time for the humanity. Well, largely what you just related. It was, it's a transformational time. That's a very interesting time to me um, from the standpoint of actually having something of value to the reader beyond the historical components of the story. Anyone who had family that immigrated during that time may be able to fill in some gaps in their knowledge. Family lore is notoriously suspect. And so oftentimes hearing the stories about what your family experienced and whatnot may not be exactly what happened. And knowing the historical background um, was, uh, might be of, of real value. So following these families, it is unlikely that any families from Europe during that time that immigrated did not share some of the experiences of the families that are related in this book. I'll give you an example of something that jumped out. I'm, I do a lot of research and I have a background in history, as I mentioned. But one of the things that struck me as particularly interest, interesting that I didn't really fully understand was in Poland during World War I, you have the unprecedented historical event of a prolonged conflict, in this case, four years, the Eastern Front of World War I ran right through the middle of Poland. But what makes it unique is that there were adversaries on both sides. The Russians are on one side of the front and the Germans are on the other side and the Poles are in the middle. And what makes that unique, there are a million men on each army on each side for four years. None of them are allies. And so wherever the immigrants would go, they were in an adversarial situation. Um, and the occupying armies really didn't care very much about the Poles. And so trying to feed 
and equip million man armies on both sides of the front, well, of course, they were pillaging and taking whatever they could and harvesting their, you know, absconding crops and livestock. And it created such a financial collapse of Poland. All schooling stopped. Farming was very difficult and certainly heartbreaking because you'd just get your crops going or you'd have your, your uh, cattle ready for calving and they'd be absconded by the army to, to, that's occupying the country. And so for me, it was a, an eye awakening. I hadn't really thought of the Eastern Front in that, in that way before. The other component, this may be of interest to some of your listeners if, if they're interested in this uh, time period, is the Polish resistance. And one of the characters in the book includes that information that I found out about the Polish resistance. And boy, you talk about a futile effort. We think of the French resistance during World War II. Well, they're fighting the Nazis as they occupy France, but they were in France and they had friendly French that but in Poland, you had the Russians on one side, you had the Germans on the other. Who do you resist? And the answer was both. They would, the resistance was fighting all occupiers. And um, we don't hear much about the, this feudal, but very aggressive uh, Polish resistance to the French, or to the uh, Russian, I'm sorry, and German occupation of Poland. I'll add one more component to it that again, it, it sort of was a catalyst to me. And um, again, uh, others who are interested in this might find it of interest as well. That may have begun the catalyst for discrimination against Poles because the Polish immigrants, when they were coming to the United States or elsewhere, but when they were leaving Poland in 1919, 20, 21, were the most desperate because their country had been occupied, their economy had collapsed, their children had the poorest education because the education system had collapsed. And so if you have a nine-year-old or 10-year-old son or daughter who missed four years of education, well, basically they had none. <laughs> there was no education. And so the Poles that were immigrating had the reputation of being less educated and more destitute poorer. And so the notion of the dumb Polak, the destitute lazy person, were the sort of the things that were concluded and said about the Poles who were immigrating that were based on these fundamentals that occurred during World War I. And so, um, and that was, that carried over. Uh, uh, the immigrants then separating and, 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 landing in different places in the United States, including Northern Wisconsin, where a lot of Poles were, experienced a great deal of discrimination. And James, have you always been interested in history? Oh, yes. Always. As, even as a young boy. Um, being a slow reader, I attended, when I had long reading assignments, would tend to read parts of rather than the entire assignment and hoped I got enough to do well enough on a test. But we were assigned when I was 11 or 12 years old in junior high school, the, the book Tale of Two Cities. And it's a long book, 480, whatever. 
But I got into it and read the whole book and enjoyed it. And when I finished, I said, that was interesting, but that couldn't have happened. And as I developed more interest in history and I realized, well, while it was fictional in many parts, the fundamental components of the history was spot on. That was a accurate uh, description of the French Revolution and the aftermath. And that really sparked my interest in history. I think that was the catalyst. Mm -hmm. My goodness, history has things that are even more interesting than fiction. And so I drifted to history. Yes, and you mentioned something interesting earlier about the tendency of history repeating itself. Can you elaborate more on that in terms of the currently pandemic? Sure. In 2015, when I was finishing up writing Wisconsin Logging Camp 1921, um, I included a component of, I had found some information about the Spanish flu, uh, which was um, pandemic at the time. Uh, the Spanish flu first occurred in 1913 or 1915 and swept through the population, but was relatively mild. Then a second variation of it, this will start sounding familiar, came through in 1918, which was a much more lethal. But what made the Spanish flu particularly uh, troubling was instead of affecting the older population as the Omicron and COVID does, or the very young, which are typical targets for viruses of that sort, the Spanish flu was particularly deadly to people in the prime of their life. In fact, more doughboys, US veterans or soldiers of World War I died from the Spanish flu than died in, on the battlefield. And so there's a, there was an episode that I included in the book that I had found of a freighter, which was, let's call it an ocean liner, but it was a, a freighter full of immigrants and doughboys, um, and there were some tourists that was denied landing at New York City because there was Spanish flu on the boat. So the, the boat had to sail around in the Atlantic Ocean until it was finally given the go-ahead to land and all of the, the passengers were off-boarded separately and put in a former tuberculosis sanitarium uh, until the two weeks of incubation for the virus had passed and, and those that didn't have it were allowed to leave. And so when you think of the current situation uh, with, with uh, COVID, I, I remember uh, not that long ago when the liners, uh, the, the cruise ships uh, were not allowed to land and there were problems in, in that regard the wearing of masks uh, and, and um, the quarantining, uh, all of that was, is all replayed. Um, very similar reaction. That's the example in the book to what you were, you were talking about, Lucia. I was reading your, your answers. You, I, you said something that I love, which is the extraordinary happens. Can you tell us more what 
Xenoglossy is, sorry, how can I say this word? <laughs> you did very well. It's Xenoglossia. Okay, Xenoglossia. Xenoglossia is, by definition, Xena is foreign, Glossia is for language. So it's foreign language. It's the sudden, inexplicable onset of the ability to speak a foreign language. And that often is accompanied by memories, thoughts, perceptions that seem equally foreign as though they're not your own. And I read about that. And, and, and again, for your listeners, and by the way, if I mention names or whatnot, um, or names of books, and if any of your listeners would uh, like the spellings or would like more information or didn't have a chance to catch it, I would be very happy to respond. They can go to my website. I'll be happy to give them the research information. If they're interested like I am, and you, you have an opportunity to research something where it'll expedite your Google search, I, I'd be happy to do that. But a psychiatrist named Ion Stevenson wrote, uh, he, he was born around 1900 um, and he died um, in perhaps uh, 1997. So a long life and long career as a psychiatrist. And he wrote a book called uh, 20 Suggested Cases of Incarnation in which he talked about xenoglossia that xenoglossia was the, this sudden ability to speak a foreign language accompanied by these thoughts of having lived another life or been in another time. Now, I'm a very pragmatic, practical, objective researcher. And so I read things like that and, and I remain somewhat skeptical, but in reading those cases, there were 20 that he outlined. There are more, but he outlined 20. And it's just, you know, individually, we can say now nah, they're crackpots or they're misdiagnosed or we could we can use whatever. But when you take them in aggregate and to say these completely disparate locations and individuals having identical sim symptoms, many of them were illiterate uh, to begin with. Many of the languages that they had gained skill at were either dead languages or languages from obscure, one was an obscure village in India. So someone, how, you know, even if you wanted to, you know, this is before the internet where you couldn't, you couldn't uh, go on and go on to Rosetta Stone or whatever and learn, learn this obscure language. And so even for the objective, it was, there is something extraordinary going on here. Yes, that's a little bit scary. And you seem to have done a lot of research in this subject. And I'm always fascinated to learn more. So uh, can you share with us some stories that led you to believe that the extraordinary happens? Sure. Um, I'll mention two. Um, one, there's a there was a young man named Harry Martindale in England, 1953 or 1956. He's working in a cellar and he hears something, looks up and reports that he saw a legion of Roman troops marching by him. Now, my first reaction is, where are the mushrooms that you might have been consuming? In that? But what makes it interesting to me as an objective is he described these, these soldiers as they walked past him. 
And there were a couple of things that he had said that people scoffed at. One is he said they were walking on their knees. Another, he said they had round shields, which the historian said, no, no, the Romans had those large rectangular shields that were phallic friendly. Uh, that's what they had. And so they dismissed it. But once he said it, two or three other people in the area said, you know, I saw the exact same thing and they added additional detail, always the round shield. 25 years later, excavating near Hadrian's Wall in England, what did they discover? Auxiliary Roman soldier camp, all with round shields. So this is 20 years after this young man saw this out, saw them and they scoffed at it. And the reason was no round shields. Now they found the round shields. Then as far as he thought they were walking on their knees and said, yeah, that is hallucinatory. What they discovered is that the old Roman road was 18 inches below the point where he saw them. So there are two historical components that would have been completely unknown that could only have been verified at a later time. And at court of, again, to an objective person, now that's kind of interesting. I'm not saying everybody sees ghosts or that, but that is interesting to me nonetheless. And I'll mention one more. I believe her name was Philippa Langley archaeologist. She is, was on the archaeological team that found the body of Richard III. And just recently, within the last decade, and no one knew what happened to the body of Richard III. He was killed in battle. Um, his body was uh, desecrated and they had no idea where it was. No idea. They, was he buried on site? Was he simply dismembered and tossed away? Was he thrown into it? They had no idea. Well, this archaeologist thought, well, if they did bury him, they may have gone to this Franciscan church, which was in existence at the time, and went there just to look around and walked on the parking lot. This is her account. And she got to one spot in the parking lot, and she said the hair on the back of her neck just stood up this an, uh, overwhelming feeling of something is extraordinary about this spot. Well, a year later, they had to get permits and come back to dig. And so she went, she decided, I'm going to go to that spot. They dug in that spot and within feet of that spot found the body of Richard III. There's a a great deal of, uh, of material written on this. And so again, if, if anyone's interested in following up, seeing is he making this up or yet? No, I'm not. <laughs> so I would encourage anyone interested to, to research it. And it's it, the nice thing about Richard III, nice to us from the standpoint of, well, okay, you found an old body, you know, near a church. It's a, could have been a graveyard. I could have been almost anyone with a couple of caveats. Number one, if you remember your Shakespeare, um, Richard III had a Shakespeare, call it a hump called him a hunchback, uh, but he actually had scoliosis. And so the skeleton had scoliosis. And the other thing that it had were about a dozen battle wounds, which would be consistent with someone whose body was being desecrated on the battle site. Um, and some, so the, these are only the wounds that you can see on the skeleton. So there could have been lots and lots of others as well. So there's little doubt 
This was Richard III. I'll add one more funny coincidence of it. When she went back to the parking lot to go to that parking spot at this church, and now that you know you have this hundred square foot parking lot paved over, there was a large R painted on the very parking spot that she wanted to dig up, Richard III. But the reason the R was there was for reserve parking. But it's just uh, kind of <laughs> ironic that that was the one spot with the R painted on that. So um, those are examples of, even to a pragmatic objective researcher, that's interesting stuff. And that's why I included it in book two that took an aggregation of xenoglossia and uh, the, the notion of extraordinary perceptions and feelings that people report and put it together into a story. So you have one person experiencing some of these things. And I was able to incorporate it into a into an historical fiction, but they are all basically issues and experiences that have been previously reported. Wow, that's unbelievable. And there have been some moments in my life where I, I can't help but think that the extraordinary does happen. And especially when it's something logic or science can't explain. And uh, I would like you could tell us a little bit about your next book is Willa's Pursuit without giving too much, please. As I mentioned, I, I enjoy writing about transformational periods in history as a backdrop, because then the reader will always learn something or there'll be more that they can identify to in the book because, oh, I remember that, I remember that. And so the 1970 was one of those periods. You have the Vietnam War, you have the protests, there's racial unrest. It follows on the heels of the assassination of, of John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King. Um, there just is a, a great deal of unrest, not just in the United States, but of course, globally. And so it was a transformational period. Uh, the President Nixon was nearing the point where he may be looking at, at resigning his presidency. So that's the backdrop. And one of the hotbeds of protest and activity was Madison, Wisconsin. University of Wisconsin. Um, for example, um, in approximately that time, 1970, uh, the chemistry building at the university was blown up. And it was blown up by individuals protesting the university's contribution to the development of napalm and war, uh, weapons of war. And so they blew up the chemistry building. So I mean, this an act of domestic terror, researcher died. Uh, they tried to blow it up at a time when no one would be in the building, but you'll have an enterprising uh, researcher who was working in just wrong place at the wrong time. So I chose Madison, Wisconsin for that reason. And I was there in 19, 1971, I was there and my brothers were there. I was taking some additional graduate classes uh, at the University of Wisconsin. That's not where I got my undergraduate degree, but I was just taking summer school classes there. So I was there. So there's some firsthand knowledge. There's some family knowledge. Uh, my brothers were there for their entire degrees um, during that same time period. 
And uh, that time period is of interest because of the transformational component of it. So the main character is the daughter of the main character in book number one. So this is occurring. He, the main character is now a father of three children. This is his daughter. She's getting her graduate degree in psychology at the University of Wisconsin. And she begins to experience extraordinary things. And initially, they are amusing. The Zynoglossia, for example, the sudden ability to speak, in this case, French, kind of amusing. But it goes downhill in a hurry as they become more prolonged and darker. And so that basically is the story as she struggles with these extraordinary things. And as she explains it to people, she is an intelligent person and she understands psychology. She's getting her degree, but she gets scoffed at even by her closest friends because of the extraordinary nature of what she's reporting. And that I included that because that's the one thing about these cases that was in common. And that was trying to get someone to listen to you as a serious reporter of what happened to you. They just scoff at it, often scoff at it or look skeptically or wonder what's wrong with you as opposed to wondering, I is there credibility, or at least I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, and let's see what we can do about it. So that's essentially the book. Oh, that sounds very interesting, James. And I would like to ask you, can you tell us where can we find you and, of course, your books? I'd be happy to. They can go to my website, which is wisconsinloggingcamp.com. No capital letters, no punctuation, just wisconsinloggingcamp.com. And there's a uh, page which is contact the author, me. And so they can go to just click contact and there'll be uh, an opportunity to type in whatever message. I get those messages directly and I am able to respond very expediently. So I look forward to Hearing. I always enjoy hearing uh, and, and anyone with questions. I enjoy sharing the research that I've done. It all can't be included in the books, but I, if I have it, I'd be delighted to share it with like-minded individuals. So people are absolutely welcome to contact me while the publication date for book number two is sometime off. When there's this, there's this kind of a lead time, I would be happy to provide any of your listeners who would like to just let me know, hey, when it comes out, let me know. I'll, I'll buy a copy. I'd be happy to give them a 25% discount. I'll give them free shipping and I'll sign the book if they like. I'd be happy to do that. And so they just let me know, hey, I'm interested. And when it comes out, I will just get back to those individuals that raise their hand and um, then make arrangements to get the book. So Wonderful. I have my hands raised. All right. <laughs> okay. I have, I want a signed copy and James was so good to talk with you. I if you have some good stories to tell us, please come back and I'm sure we'll be very happy to listen to you again. I'll, I'll give you the right to uh, retract that at some point, but I would be delighted to come back and I have a lot of information. So thank you very much for the invitation and your kind words. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, 
so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening and remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time.